It's not what a movie is about. It's how it is about it. Roger Ebert. He's kind of crazy. She's a little insane. Keeping energy really messes with his brain. One is divorced. The other's husband is dead. That's why it's so messed up in the head. It's a silver lining playcast. Hello, everybody. I'm Jamie Ward. I'm the host of the Silver Linings Playcast. As far as I know, it is still the only podcast that is solely devoted to talking about Silver Linings Playbook, the movie, and the Silver Linings Playbook, the book. We're back for our eighth episode. This is the second part of a two-parter. If you were with us last week... You'll know that we were talking about a review of the film. Uh, this was a 2012 review by Richard Brody from The New Yorker. It was an article. It's still available online. It's called The Book on quote-unquote Silver Linings Playbook. And we were breaking down why I felt his review was really just um, an egregious affront to film criticism in the spirit of enjoying good movies. Uh, you can listen to last week to hear my, my criticisms of Richard Brody himself and understanding that, that a lot of that comes from the fact I, I understand it. I'm going to, I'm going to give him a little bit of a pass in the sense that his background isn't something that I still really do like, which is, um, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, French New Wave cinema. So if you if you look at Silver Linings Playbook completely through the lens of what film is supposed to be based off of only that, it probably does fail that litmus test of being a good movie or not, because in fact, it is not that French New Wave cinema. Uh, it is it is less sort of influenced by abstractness. It is far more positive. It is a stronger, cohesive, just linear narrative. Everything about it, the the style, uh, anyway. You know, it's made thirty to forty years after when most of the films that characterize that era are from uh, Truffaut, Godard, uh, them, them all, all thems. So, but but here's the thing. I'm not here to talk about that. Uh, listen to the last episode, and you will get caught up on the first half of the article. We're just going to jump right back into sort of deconstructing things that Richard Brody was saying about Silver Linings Playbook and why he's basically wrong on every single point. And I, so I think he just doesn't understand the film. Maybe if he did, he would be more correct. And I'm also a person that thinks... Yeah, like there's no there's no right or wrong opinion on a movie. You're allowed to not like a movie. You're allowed to have different taste in music, books, cinema. But he tries to make logical arguments about why it's not a good film, and he's just not approaching it from the right standpoint. So I want you to know that that this is not just like a, a grudge match I'm having with this terrible, awful film review. And I'm, I'm attributing it to the film review, not him. I'm just saying it's very flawed in its reasoning and it's out of context. If you have somebody that studies, I don't know, rap and hip hop completely, if that's their area of expertise, 
and then you have them reviewing a brand new country album, there will be, hopefully, you know, if you're an expert in music, there will be some things you can appreciate, understand, and criticize. But I really want somebody, you know, to to have some type of familiarity with the genre and medium that I am looking for. I mean, that's why we go to movie reviews, right? Movies are coming out. And movies judge their success to the studios in the amount of money they make back and the awards they win, which then leads into making more money through through uh, home sales and ticket sales and viewings, right? So the importance of the reviews is to let audience, potential audience know whether they're going to like the movie and whether they should see it because it's an investment of your time and money, right? Especially now. It's a huge investment uh, of your time and maybe risking your life if you're going to go see it. So you want to know a little bit like, hey, I don't want to waste three hours of my life and $30, $100 if two people go and have food there. So let me get some idea of whether I'll like it. And because it's such a complex question, because a lot of people want to know sometimes more than like thumbs up or thumbs down. Will I like it? Will I know? We all have different tastes and stuff. That's that's the purpose of movie reviews. You, you find people with different personalities uh, that you like and you'll get a general idea of, oh, this this critic they tend to like the same kind of movies I do. You have a much higher percentage chance of, of liking a movie if, if somebody with the same personality type or sensibilities likes a movie as yours. So basically, I am never going to watch a Richard Brody recommended movie, uh, except for the classic movies, because he <laughs> clearly likes <laughs> plenty of movies I like. In fact, he is a, I think... What was it? He made a documentary on uh, Jean-Luc Godard, who I absolutely love. Let's let's not get too distracted. Let's go back to ripping apart his life's work. Brody's, that is. <clears throat> All right. So let's pick up where where we were in the in the. Uh, Film review. I'm not going to reread all the things that we went over last week, but I will pick up mid-paragraph of where we left off on the criticism. So the last thing I was, we were talking about was uh, he his criticism of the film was that he felt there was a dangerous message in regards to mental health, and that it was this idea that positive life changes like working out, yoga, running, yogurt can can uh, fix your mental health problems, which I know is, uh, one of those things that's like not only not true, it's, it's a, a a criticized thought and it's a a problem that a lot of people talk in those ways too. really simplifying uh, problems that are far more complex. I have jokes in my stand up act about it, right? That if, you know, if you ever say you have an anxiety problem, there's, there's nothing like saying that out in public that will, make a, a suburban soccer mom pop out of nowhere and start offering you unsolicited advice on how to help you with your mental problems with with absolutely no medical background at all. I, one of the big ones, people always suggest yoga. I'd be like, I, you know, I, I have problems socializing. I have emotional problems. I have a post-traumatic stress disorder. And people will be like, have, have you tried yoga? <laughs> Guess what? Yes. Yes, I have yoga. I like yoga. It's it's an enjoyable uh, exercise. It feels very good. I even like 
the the sort of uh, cerebral spiritual aspects of it, like taking moments to calm yourself and trying to get those uh, interpersonal attunations with nature and and your uh, inner chakras and stuff. But I'm not going to make that as a recommendation to somebody who's experienced problems, <laughs> head head problems, trauma problems. Um, not it. It is a thing. I, I do want to say, uh, diet and exercise are things that can set the groundwork for you to become better. Uh, and what I mean by that is that the, you know, and this is in no way a substitute for for actual. Uh, psychological, mental, or medical care. But, you know, if, if you're dealing with those things in your life, and I'm saying this all from first-person experience and, and only talking about my personal experience too, not speaking for anybody else's experience on this, but I can tell you very authoritatively for myself that when I am not doing things to take care of myself as a person in my life, that makes it much more difficult to deal with those things because then my body hurts too. I'm also suffering. Uh, But the thing that other people don't understand that are always, uh, you know, suggesting these little band-aids for for bullet wounds is that uh, sometimes it's actually not cause and effect the way they see it. I understand the good intentions of other people too, right? Like they, they see people that they love hurt and they want to be able to fix you, help you. I do too. I mean, that's the funniest thing that I experience a lot of these problems. And I see people that have the same type of problems for different reasons. We all have our own different reasons for being the same, but we, we might be suffering from the same uh, condition. But, and even then, like I'm tempted, like all I can do is give them the exact same advice that I hate when people give me, it's because we hurt when we see people that we love hurt and we want to do something. And it's also very scary. The concept of mentally breaking, like what, honestly, what else is there? If you break your arm, you, you patch it up and you wait for it to heal. But the idea of a brain breaking is terrifying. And so I do want to have sympathy for people that offer this unsolicited advice. I do understand I think it's a terribly scary thing for people that don't experience any of these, these mental health problems to believe that that is a thing that can happen too. I remember when I was a child and I used to watch movies and, you know, they have different uh, depictions of people being crazy in movies. And it's the most terrifying thing you could possibly see. I think uh, when one flew over the cuckoo's nest was one of the um, scariest movies I ever saw in little school. I was a kid, and then I guess they actually wrote a book about that movie um, a number of years before the movie came out, uh, and that was that was a joke. I know it was a book <laughs> first, uh, and you know, starring that golf player uh, Phil Mickelson. We're going too far off track. Let's get back to ripping apart Richard Brody's uh, film review. Okay, so what what he was saying? Where are we in the article? and I'm quoting from the article now from the New Yorker. If there were substance to the movie, it would respond to the question of whether character is destiny or whether a person can change and still be himself, be true to himself, or whether in fact a current iteration of a person broken and full of blame may in fact be a false one, 
with the true and better self waiting to emerge from better circumstances. Now, we kind of addressed this in the, because I stopped mid-paragraph last episode. But, and I'm going to just read from my notes that I wrote from him. I would contest that it is uh, not about willing happy endings at all. In fact, we were talking specifically about the word willing a happy ending. I was actually researching something completely different on YouTube and I was looking in the comments and I really love a comment that somebody left. And this was just about the theme song from Silver Linings Playbook. We're going to have a whole episode where we talk about the music, I think, coming up. That's something I'm very interested to talk about. But this idea of willing, and I loved what this person said in the review. They said, Silver Linings Playbook is not about fixing the past. It's about second chances. And that's, I've brought this up, I think, in three different episodes because it's such key to the film. It's so amazing. You probably already know what I'm going to say. It's it's Jennifer Lawrence's little uh, speech to Pat where she says she's forgiven herself uh, for her past, and but she's not getting rid of that past. I love that. I love that so much. That's why it sticks with me so much. And it's so amazing because it comes so early in the movie. That's why this is such a good movie. You have what would have been the climax of any other movie about 40 minutes into this movie with more great climaxes to come. It's a multi-full, multi-climactic film. So this movie is not about willing a happy ending. It's not about fabricating a happy ending. It's not, it's uh, not about finding your destiny. I think it's accepting your past, making the best of it. And when I say making the best of it, it's not taking the bad things and pretending like they're good things. We had a whole episode on the, the expression silver lining. What that is, is, Sometimes when bad things happen, there will be secondary effects. There will be third order effects to what happens. If you're not tracking, that's something that happens because of something that happens. The third, the third level of influence, tertiary effects. Tertiary being one of my favorite words. Serendipitous and passion being my other two favorite words. In order, it's probably, my favorite word is probably passion, not for the actual word. It's a pretty good word. I like it. It's got the smooth S's with a with a fun P at the beginning, passion. Uh, but I really love what that word means. And I'm, I'm not talking necessarily strictly in the romantic sense, but I just think if you do something, do it with passion, right? I like passionate people. I like people that are not ambivalent about things. If you're going to do something, do it completely. If you like a movie, start a whole podcast about it. <laughs> Right, but we don't know any people like that, right? Serendipitous. Serendipitous is one of my favorite words because of the actual word. I like how uh, it's just it's just fun to say. It's like it's like a, a water slide of syllables. Serendipitous. It's uh, the the smooth s's sort of get you rolling through the word fast, and then that oh, d towards the end of it. Uh, it's, it's like if you're going down a water slide with lots of little slides and you hit that D and then you just go woo up into the air. <laughs> this is, 
This is a real weird vibe we're having on this week's episode. It's all right. We're going to make it through. All of this was to say, that's my order, passion, serendipitous. That that um, version of it too, serendipitous. I mean, I guess it comes from the 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 original word serendipity, uh, which was a film, but that's not my favorite word. My second favorite word of all time is serendipitous, right? And then my third one being tertiary. So I really, so I'm really big on adjectives, uh, even though I guess passion is a noun, but my other two, I like adjectives. I like fun adjectives. Tertiary effects. We're talking about the silver lining is is finding finding something good that can happen even in the midst of something bad that can happen which is interesting I'll I want to give you a funny book fact real quick this is not really a book fact so there was there was a movie serendipity it's called serendipity I I myself am trying to be an author I just started a book publishing company this week, there'll be more information about that coming out. I'm very excited. It's going to be a fun project, but I probably don't deserve to be an author. I've read very few books in my life. I've written very little, uh, but I guess I'm passionate about it. So here we are. Going to start all this up and get this project going. However, the reason I was bringing that up is there, there was a romantic comedy from, I believe... I don't know, the early 2000s, uh, maybe maybe 2005, 2007, somewhere in there. I didn't research it. because. Oh, no, no, no. It's This has got to be later, earlier, uh, somewhere between somewhere between 2000 and 2007. I guess my guess was 2005 to 2007. That, that would be an acceptable range. I'm just, I'm thinking it's probably sooner than that. It had uh, Kate Beckinsale and John Cusack. And it's about two people that we don't have to get into it. It's not nearly as good as Silver Linings Playbook. The reason I brought all that up, though, is because the plot several times makes reference to a book called Love in a Time of Cholera. Now, I thought that that was a a book that they made up specifically for that movie. I did not know that was a real classic book. I thought the title of that was so stupid. I'm like, there's one, there's no way that could be a real book. Who would call their movie love, their book, Love in a Time of Cholera? Um, It's... It's too literally, the title is too literally what it is. It's not exciting. It's Love in a Time of Cholera is about as good of a name for a book as as naming beef and broccoli on a Chinese menu. I've always had a problem with uh, the dish called beef with broccoli. And the reason I have it, I have a problem with that too, is if you look on the menu, next time you go to a Chinese restaurant or actually you shouldn't be going to restaurants, Order in, stay inside, social distance. That's right, we're recording this in 2020. But 
look at look at the menu. Go on Uber Eats. Go on Postmates. Go to a Chinese restaurant, and you'll you look at the way dishes are shown, and you'll have things like General Gao's chicken, General So's chicken. Uh, I've seen I've seen different variations. I've seen the General's chicken. Uh, I've, we could get into a whole other conversation about this weirdly named dish. There's actually a whole documentary on it too that I watched about half of. Also, not as good a documentary as Silver Linings Playbook is a movie. But the the problem I have with this is all these menu items. They'll say the name of the dish and then they have a description of the dish, right? So let's just General So's chicken, uh, lightly breaded chicken served with red peppers and other traditional spices, right? That's the way menus work. The, the dish beef and broccoli is titled beef and broccoli, beef with broccoli, and then under the description, beef served with broccoli. <laughs> I, um, I just have problems with things that it, it sounds fun. So even orange chicken is not orange chicken served with oranges. There may be orange rinds in it, orange flavored, but orange chicken is not chicken with oranges. So I don't understand why beef and broccoli is this dish that's considered beef and broccoli. Uh, I blame you, Richard Brody. You would probably, it sounds exactly like the kind of dish you would love. Beef with broccoli. We're criticizing his criticism of Silver Linings Playbook. As we talked about uh, to the, the expression silver lining, we're talking about finding that silver lining. is And, and I was trying to address that there's really no, um, you know, there... Nobody in the film, I think, is advocating for pretending like everything is okay if it's not. Nobody is. None of the characters are. He really reduces this stupid uh, play into some... Um, so, uh, I don't know, pause. Sorry, I got a text message and I don't... I, I You all know that I probably am not very good at keeping in contact with anybody. So if I ever do get texts or calls, I try to respond to them very quickly because uh, I don't have very many friends, so I try to keep the ones I have. <laughs> I guess, or I don't know. Maybe it's just also late and I can be accountable because this is not that important and probably anybody that uh, would text me would also be the only people that listen to this. So it's kind of their fault that there's a weird gap in a moment of unprofessionalness in my podcast. Anyway. Okay. Uh, so we are saying nobody's advocating for just pretending everything is okay when it's not just like that. Right. That's the first pause I've taken in mid mid recording a podcast so far. I've, I've, generally done the full hours either they've been conversations with other people or i've had the script that i was going to work off with and just done the straight hour with no breaks even though we have the technology i could go back and edit them so that they 
you know, we're, we're cleaner or, you know, don't have those little lulls, but I like, I like an element of it to be natural, fluid and organic as well. So we're going to talk about, uh, the, the fact that he thinks that this movie is stupid because it's telling everybody to just make sure everything is good. This is where I bring up one of my favorite uh, New Wave films, Jules and Jim, uh, from Francois Truffaut, which was a 60s film, a French film. Uh, I think we talked about it before, about uh, two friends, and then they both fall in love with the same woman at different points, blah, 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 blah. Uh, so, So if you deconstruct that film and other... Uh, other films of the era from those those filmmakers. I, th- I think Silver Linings Playbook ends up being sort of the most anti-French new wave film you can you can possibly get that thematically, stylistically, the story is just totally different. It being the anti-French new wave. So, well, they're just going to move on to the next thing because I am. Thing, uh, allowing myself to be more distracted than I normally am during a podcast. Uh, when, when I say distracted during a podcast, podcasting is distracting me from doing all the things that I should be doing, writing my books or working on my show or whatever. Anyway, I just like it. Having fun. Okay. So the next line that we're going to address from Richard Brody's article, quoting from Richard Brody again. Would that the movie took on such questions. Rather, it starts out with its own soothing answers to them, and for all the loud and roiling action, leaves no doubt from the beginning about where it's going. The deterministic world of the movie is script-settled, and it's all thumbs up. Well, yes, it is all thumbs up. Of course it's going to be thumbs up. Not every movie has to be depressing. Like we said, it's not French New Wave. And I realize there's other points that I'm going to contest besides just saying that it's the anti-French New Wave film. We'll go the rest of this podcast without mentioning French New Wave cinema again. But it's okay that a movie would, uh, you know, say that it's going in a happy direction. We know that Disney movies are probably not going to end with... An open-ended, downer ending. You're not going to find the character was dead the whole time. Uh, The murderer wasn't him the whole time or her the whole time. The genie gets released at the lamp at the end of Aladdin. The lion becomes the king. The little mermaid gets legs. That's kind of a weird one. Um and I know there's the, there's sort of like this hack premise that everybody loves deconstructing the old fairy tales that yes, beauty and the beast is a story about Stockholm syndrome and, and things like that. You know what? Uh, sometimes a story is just meant to be inspirational and happy too. You read these stories to your kids so that they'll have positive thoughts and try to accomplish good things. You don't want to crush kids with the uh, existential dread of the reality of existence when they're little kids. That's probably the problems that I have come a little bit from being exposed to too much reality when I was little. If you talk to people about their trauma, it's usually has um, 
people can deal with trauma better later in their lives. It's those people that are not given this protective bubble. And the protective bubble can be a good thing too. I mean, that's this is the thing I'm saying that uh, there should be a good balance. It's why I'm a big advocate for, for mentorship and leadership. I think the best leaders are people that really get engaged with the, the people that, that they are serving, the people that work for them and the, or that they're leading. They are, are, are really serving those people. And you give them a balance. Uh, for a long time, my job was to give safety briefings to people. And so basically what I had to tell them is all the bad things that could happen and how to mitigate those things. But you also want to tell them success stories so that they don't just go out with this, this uh, you know, mentality of things are have to go bad every time. You want to know, give people that, that human fighting spirit that things can be overcome. One of my favorite stories about an adventurer is the, the story about Ernest Shackleton's expedition uh, to Antarctica um, that uh, him and his guys all had basically one of the the worst trips ever with everything going wrong, uh, their ship getting stuck in the ice, their men getting um, stranded, losing their way, like everything possibly bad that could happen did. And these guys made it to their goal, came back, rescued all their people, uh, and it was just a, a, you know, called it like a triumph of the human spirit. And, and a lot of that came from these people being able to do amazing things. And one of the beauties of film and storytelling, some of the best stories are in fact about uh, not grand and huge things. Like the whole drama genre of film, books, and storytelling is usually uh, not, not these big fairy tale adventures with dragons and war. It's really just talking about the perseverance of the human spirit you you have a quote early on and i'm i'm being lazy and not going back to actually read the quote even though it's all over the place but uh pat pat makes a reference to life will disappoint you every opportunity you could possibly get but if you you know you try as hard as you can you can find your silver lining that's the paraphrase and that's, that's the truth. And I'm sorry if uh, Richard Brody thinks that having a theme, stating it, you know, like a good writer, like a thesis paragraph in an essay, you know, giving the audience some idea where we're going to go on this journey. I'm sorry if that's too unrealistic for you and disappoints you in your writing and, and filmmaking sensibilities. No problem with that. That is not a flaw of a movie it's one of the things that makes this movie great. Sometimes you don't need a movie to be sad. And guess what? Maybe maybe Bradley Cooper is dead the whole time. Maybe Pat is dead and this is him getting back. That that would be a fun spin. Let's take a Shyamalan approach. Just don't watch don't watch the first 5 minutes of the movie. Imagine there was a big train wreck and then the rest of the movie is not Pat getting out of of uh, you know, the institutional, uh, the, the institution, it's him waking up and, and finding out he's dead and coming to grips with all that. Do you like that? Is it a good movie now? No, the movie was perfect already. It wasn't perfect. It's my perfect movie. Never said it was a perfect movie. 
I think we're going to have to do an episode to address all the things that I think are wrong with Silver Linings Playbook, but we will get to that. All right, so what is, so we said, what was the movie took us on a, such a question, deterministic of the world, blah, blah, blah. That was his quote. My response to that that I wrote in my script was, this movie is dark. I don't know uh, what movie he watched. Sorry, you're not chain smoking and talking about how existence is pain. That's right. There's more themes available to us than just that. Okay, this we're going back to the article now. Silver Linings Playbook is the second movie of the season to wear its marketing so blatantly on its sleeve to integrate its commercial positioning so forthrightly into the story. The other is Skyfall. First, the story challenges the medical establishment and the efficacy of medical science in bringing about results. Pat doesn't take his medication because he doesn't like how it makes him feel and because it makes him gain weight whereas he wants to be svelte and buff in order to win his wife back. His mental health depends, and guess what? where this is going in the story, on his ability to control his behavior through force of will and the ability to make emotional connections based on empathetic and mature choices, as if mental illness itself might not be an insurmountable obstacle to those connections and choices. The movie will be a hit with those who think the hyperactivity is just a failure of discipline and depression merely a bad attitude, to the tune of Accentuate the Positive, which is a reference to Jonah and the Whale, Noah and the Ark. Well, one, we just sort of address some of that. It's nobody's willing anything better. Also, maybe he did read the book. If In the book, The Silver Linings Playbook, Pat makes a lot more references to saying that Pat's ex-wife, Nikki, really likes guys with big arms and big chest. Uh, I, it is clear that Pat is working out in the movie Silver Lines Playbook, but I'm not sure that it's as expressly uh, reiterated as many times in the book. Like, it becomes almost this thing that he keeps repeating in the book. He's like, Nikki really likes muscular guys. I got to work on my upper body strength. I'm trying to trying to make gains, bro. Uh, get these gains, right? And, and um, that is not not really a thing in the movie. He, he does run, but I think that that's sort of more uh, just he needs to move to, to get himself out of his mental funk, which, and maybe that's what uh, Richard is really focusing on thinking is, is saying that that's his attempt to try to fix himself mentally. He's not, he's going to therapy. Guess what? A lot of people don't like to take medications. I don't like to take medications. I don't like to take, uh, I don't even like to take, over-the-counter medications for when I get sick. I have this really weird feeling that, like, if I ever, I, uh, I, this is not coming from a doctor at all. This is my personal weird, crazy, paranoid feeling that medicine becomes less effective the more times I take it. And so I just want to save it for any time that I would direly need like, I realize there are some things that do uh, become less effective over time, like antibiotics or something. That's not even what I'm talking about. Like, I literally do not want to take cold medicine or anything um, because I just I feel like, well, one, I don't like affecting the, the chemistry of my mind already. I've got enough problems with everything being fine. I mean, sugar probably affects me too much, Right. Uh, the, the stuff that's found in normal foods, I don't need to be messing with chemicals beyond that. And 
let's look into the, the I, I don't really like this, this phrase from that he starts off with the second movie of the season to where it's marketing so blatantly on its sleeve to integrate its commercial positioning. So forthrightly into the story. Uh, one, are they talking about raisin brand? Because I'm pretty sure I am the only person that cares that much about the Raisin Bran scene. One, it is an amazing scene. It can still be a date if you order Raisin Bran. You don't know how great that quote is. Uh, it will be even better a week from now. Anyway, <laughs> the um, the other one being Skyfall, which my guest Nick Cassano brought up uh, a number of weeks ago when he was on here and we were talking about Academy Awards, 85th Academy Award winning film. I'm not really sure what he's talking about, so maybe this is my fault in not understanding what he, what argument he's making that I can completely address it. What, what I feel like he's referencing, though, is that it's sort of it's a film that's setting itself up to try to win an Academy Award or or be like that kind of, or like sell itself as we're this super positive, like selling it for the Hallmark audiences. One, you don't have to try that hard. You got Bradley Cooper in the film. You got Jennifer Lawrence, who was not the Jennifer Lawrence we all know and reasonably are fine with. Uh, but I'm, I mean, she's fantastic. But um, I'm, I'm just saying that, like, she, uh, she wasn't as this. This is the film that sort of solidified her, uh, her acting chops to the world, where she had been in some other stuff where people were like, ah, you know, she's pretty good. She's a cute actress. She can do these things. She is wonderful in this movie. And you're like, oh, you can do more than, than be a uh, Hungry Games girl or something. Bradley Cooper is fantastic in every... I, I And I would love to get people's opinion on this. That I think he is one of the best actors of our generation. I, I just think... I think he's so consistent. And when I, when I say consistent, I mean, like, he brings a good performance. If you, if he shows up in something, you know, he is going to have given it like the, the full acting treatment. He's going to done, have done his research and made his choices about the characters and really try to do something interesting with it. And, and there may be movies that are not as good where, where he's not as good, but I think him as an actor he is extremely professional and talented. And I think that consistency is one of the things that is in 20, 30, 40 years, people will look at this decade of movies and be like, he is definitely one of the top actors. Um, the way, you know, we look back at like Clint Eastwood. Uh, that was probably not the one I wanted to, to draw. I, I was thinking of, Grand Torino. <laughs> I don't know why. Uh, the here's why. Here's why I was. I I said his name. I kept. I was trying to say Jimmy Stewart. That was the actor I was trying to think of, and I was thinking of one of my favorite films, uh, The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance. And when I was thinking about that, I was thinking about Cowboys, Cowboys, Clint Eastwood from the Man with No Name trilogy, the uh, Fistful of Dollars of dollars more the good the bad and the ugly and then i started thinking of grand torino torino and what i would probably say about him 
I actually have not seen that many movies, and I think he's really good at that uh, cool guy part. But I'm I'm uh, I actually have no familiarity with how I would rate him as an actor from sort of the heyday of his his uh, acting career. What I do know is he's a phenomenal director. He's a really, really good director. And he was very good in a couple of the last, the uh, later movies that I saw him in, uh, Gran Torino being one of them, right? Uh, so none of that was really what I meant to say. I was going to say that... I was just trying to, to make a reference to how I think we're going to think of Bradley Cooper in the future. Oh, you know, the other reason I was making that connection, though, because Clint Eastwood directed American Sniper, which featured Bradley Cooper, which I think was an amazing performance by Bradley Cooper, too. Uh, that was sort of, I mean, it is a, biogra- a biographical film, but uh, he really brings, so it's it's not just an action film, though. I think the thing that I loved about American sniper so much was not the, the scenes where Bradley Cooper's overseas doing, doing the, the fight and being, being Chris Kyle, the, the Navy seal sniper. It, uh, this was the half of the performance, the at home performance, the, the slow sort of, um, I, I don't want to say, uh, devolving cause it's not, uh, but the the way he falls apart at home, that's a very difficult role to act, uh, especially for people who have sort of not experienced that. I want to say is is the the uh, veteran role, and what I mean by that is so many people can sort of go through the military training and and pretty much uh, do do an an on-screen portrayal of a military person very well. And part of that is because, you know, we, what what you're expecting and the way we think of the military is, you know, these people that follow orders that do these things very precisely. Like that is what basically, I don't want to say bad acting is, but that should be easy for an actor to follow instructions. Like you almost don't have to inject anything because if you're a bad actor and you're supposed to act like a soldier, you're just going to seem like a more authentic soldier. I sound like I'm just now denigrating everything about this. It would, it's, it, I really have a more nuanced opinion on this than I'm being able to, to say at the time. But it's all because what I really want to talk about is the fact that the, the real nuance of his performance in American Sniper is when he returns home. Because there is sort of this stereotype of, oh, this is what a, a, a person that served in war is going to be like when they come back. And then it's, it's like, oh, is, is, is he just going to be affected? Is he going to sort of like try to be normal and then have these flashbacks and stuff? There's a lot of subtlety in, in how he plays that. It's very delicate. It's very authentic and touching, emotional. Not every actor would have been able to do both sides of that, too. You know, one of the other greatest performances, I think, I, one, of my, one of my favorite actors of all time, I think he's I think he's uh, very on par with Bradley Cooper. I, th- I I I'm saying that like I think I think these are very similar in skill and able to fulfill the same roles even though this other guy uh, Denzel Washington 
and I and I would I would only give sort of more credit to Denzel Washington at this point because I think he's been around way longer just with solid performances. But that same thing, like if either of these guys are in a movie, I'm I'm probably gonna like the the movie. I'm definitely gonna like their performance in it. I I think Denzel is amazing in the way that he can he can be the tough guy. He can be a leader. He can be somebody who's like you want to see as an action guy. But but what I'm so impressed with from these actors is okay. So what happens when that can can you bring that same character into a much more vulnerable state within the same movie and authentically, not feeling like you're filming two different movies in the same movie? Can you make those the same character? Both actors that can do that phenomenally well. So you got them. Uh, you have Robert De Niro in the film. And one, I so love Robert De Niro. I have talked about this with my friends. I don't remember if I've said it on this podcast before or not. I think I have where I talked about, you know, he, uh, you know, you have the middle of his, of De Niro's career where he's doing a lot of tough guy roles. You got uh, Raging Bull, Taxi Driver, all the mob movies and stuff. Goodfellas being one of the greatest movies of all time, in my opinion. One of the most enjoyable movies. Not only is it a great film, but because there's a difference between like what is a really good film plus one that I actually enjoy watching because it's fun. Like the Godfather, one, you know, one of the greatest films of all time. Would I rather watch the Godfather or Goodfellas? I have a lot more fun watching Goodfellas. Uh, it's one, it's just one of my favorite films of all time. It's like it's multiple movies, but I'm just saying it's sort of made for more mass appeal. That is not to take away from The Godfather at all. I'm sure Richard Brody would know nothing about that, though. He probably puts The Godfather on his 10 worst films of all time, but that's because he's a big stupid head. I'm sorry, I'm not, I'm not saying that it's probably slander or illegal or something. I don't know. And let's, let's go back to ripping apart what he says. Okay. So we're going back to Silver Linings. Oh, no, no. I missed the whole reason I brought up this thing. So, so you're saying it was commercial positioning for it to be an Academy Award. Uh, yeah, every, every studio usually picks their some of the movie projects that they want to do based on whether they think they're going to win awards or something. Right? Okay, I, if... Um, so I took a movie, I went to film school a while ago. So I know some of the stuff has changed, but I remember learning in a film production class that they were talking about how movie studios, and this really shocked me too. But if, if a movie studio makes, um, I don't remember the numbers, but let's, let's just make up 20 movies a year there. I remember them saying they're really only banking on like two of those films, to be like good movies, like really have a shot at the, the awards and trying to make back way more money than they made. And then a lot of the movies they're going to make for the year are sort of filler movies. Like they're hoping that they, they make a profit, especially overseas and stuff, but they're really not gunning to try to make awards. But then, but, but the different studios are, sort of playing their own weird little sport game with, Oh, we're going to, we're going to make this many romantic comedies uh, this year. 
and that's that's sort of just to to make some movie for the studio. Oh, here's here's a picture that probably could you know go for some of the big awards. We're gonna make that. So they're only making a couple of those. I you know I as a kid you always see those and I'd wonder like oh why is why is not all the my favorite movies nominated for awards? I thought they were wonderful. I didn't realize how that worked and how business runs everything. So that is not a fault you can really put in your movie review of like, oh, this is one of the ones that's postured to try to win awards this year. It's commercial prospects of it. Well, you know what? Maybe that means it's good. Huh? Maybe that means that you have a higher percentage of liking it. Maybe I don't know who reads The New Yorker, but if I'm going to read a film review because I only go to see one movie a year, I'm going to check out what is probably going to win the Academy Award this year. And that's the movie I'm going to watch. Because I don't, um, or if there's a movie about figure skating, I will always go to see the movie about figure skating or a Quentin Tarantino movie. Actually, I haven't, uh, I, I missed the Quentin Tarantino movie last year, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I saw it later. It was great. It was fantastic. But I did not see it in theaters. I saw, it was actually the last movie from the Academy Awards I watched too after after the awards I finally I broke down when the um when the <laughs> when the quarantine was starting <laughs> and we all just started watching as many movies as we could and I was like I'm going to watch all the Academy Award nominees from last year and so that's when I got around to it so that or figure skating movies also if Quentin Tarantino if yeah yeah you know, if Mr. Quentin Tarantino ever made a film about figure skating, that would be pretty incredible. I would go see that multiple times. I would go see that in theaters. I would go in the during the pandemic to go see a Quentin Tarantino movie about figure skating. Right now. Cough on me all the way. Stick your hand in my dirty popcorn. Uh, not a euphemism, right? I would do that to see a Tarantino film about figure skating. All right, we got to burn through this. Without a word about religion in the script, Silver Lining Playbook advocates a faith-based view of mental illness and overall of emotional redemption. The plot, after all, turns on gambling, a parlay in which two results are connected, the outcome of a football game, over which, of course, the betters have no influence, and of a dance competition, which depends on the exertion of, ex exertions of the com competitors. Gambling and faith have long been connected from Pascal's wager through guys and dolls. And in Silver Linings Playbook, the Philadelphia Eagles are divine. The belief in their power is an article of faith. And superstition plays the role of ritual in their service. Yes, there's a moment when the superstition is confronted by reason, but I leave that to the viewers to see the results of that only apparent recalibration. Uh, this is the most ridiculous interpretation I've ever heard. Uh, the, I think there, one, there is not a lot of, uh, religious symbology in this film. Uh, that's there, there is a tie to sort of like Christian symbolism in film and storytelling just in the, the Western sensibilities of storytelling, Right. You, so you have the progression of humanity that, that started all civilization sort of starting in what's now the Middle East. And then you have uh, Greek and Roman civilizations where a lot of our mythology and stories are based, which I understand predate modern Christianity. But there's, 
you, you see a lot of people that wrote the, the stories that appear in the Bible. And a lot of that was based on people that grew up on the stories from these other previous cultures too. Also, you have different historical things going on with like Roman persecution of the Christians. And then you wonder about like, I don't know, was, was there some during that persecution maybe where some of the Christian mythology that was written, the stories from that time were in fact uh, replaced or, or did the, the, the Roman um, civilization and eventually church sort of inject some of their culture into what is now thought to be sort of the modern day stories and lineage of Christian history. We could get so into that in history. I'm watching a really cool uh, series on Amazon right now about uh, Greek mythology. And then I'm, I'm studying like the, the Irish mythology and, and pagan mythology. I, I'm a big fan of, of the original stories, storytelling, and everything is based on those. So when you go to American storytelling and cinema, a lot of those things, uh, the, the Western idea of, of film and storytelling draws from what it knows and draws from what comes from the, you know, the early days of that. And the, the country was founded by, and I'm not even going to get into like whether it was founded by, by Christians. I, there's a lot of things where it was, you know, it was found by deists or atheists or that's all fine. All I am addressing is that many of the stories, like if you look at frontiersmen stories, if you look at things like uh, the the Little House on the Prairie series, Laura Ingalls Wilder, and all of them. So uh, up in the Badlands, the what's the Dakotas? These pockets of early American settlers really uh, did sort of follow a sort of um, stereotypical traditional Christian faith. And so you have people that are raising their kids on stories from the Bible. I have, I, I always speculate that a lot of this was done more like telling their kids these stories as like morality tales, sort of like uh, the way that other cultures have other parables, uh, Aesop's fables. You have things like the Arabian nights, um, fairy tales you you teach kids life lessons through stories and a lot of a lot of the use of the church to do this was simply because in the early days in the wilderness when they were pioneers you're spending a lot of time building your houses hunting uh just trying to do settling things right so uh, a little bit of that that sort of emotion uh moral upbringing was outsourced to the church, which also was a big source of community for for early American civilizations like that. That's going to bleed into the storytelling. That's going to, to carry over into the tradition of passing down stories from generation to generation. So, yes, there is going to be parallels from... Uh, from Christianity to show up in basically anything that's a traditional Western storyline. Does that mean that it is religious in nature? Not at all. Uh, like it can be if you want there, you know, you could, you can take the, the matrix, the film, um, the matrix, I guess now a trilogy soon to be an even more elegy. 
Um, and people have said that Keanu Reeves character, there's, there's always sort of like a, a messianic, uh, mess- uh, is that the right word? I might be using that incorrectly, but sort of like a, a Jesus parallel allegory, um, for characters on the hero's journey. You, you could take it back even further though. Cause you could take it to, to like Joseph Campbell's theory about mythology, philosophy of mythology and the hero of a thousand faces and the, the Greek mythologies of like Odysseus, um, the, the Trojan wars and all of those things and say, uh, there, the, there's these stories that predate Christianity that Christianity is based on too. So you could say that Christianity is based on even some of the, the further back pagan, uh, uh, you know, mythology, Greek mythology. I'm getting a little circular in my logic right now, but all I'm, I'm saying is it, it's sort of a stretch to say, hey, Silver Linings Playbook goes by some, you know, uh, good, good structure storytelling, good structure story development, and automatically say that he can identify the source going just to, to sort of religious context, where I'd say any good story, here's the thing, regardless of what you're feeling about stories is, you have a book called The Bible, which has well-told stories in it, right? Maybe it's it's old, but if you look at that versus any other uh, mytho- mythological storytelling from any other age, it's on par with those. That's all I'm saying about that, right? So uh, for him to to say that there's a cause and effect, really, that Silver Linings Playbook is religious because it looks like that, well, you know what? Maybe they all look similar because humanity, as long as it has been around, has always wanted some pretty common themes in their stories. The story has to do with overcoming adversity and your protagonists going through a change, right? So I don't think there's anything necessarily that that ties itself to religion exclusively because of it. Also, uh, the Bible says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. That's one of the commandments. And uh, all five major religions of the world, I think, have some sort of similar um, type of commandments or such. And the Sabbath day is Sunday for Christians, Saturday in the Jewish faith, I believe. Uh, and, and I know that because I always order a lot of my photography equipment from a, uh, a Jewish run company in New York. And it's really interesting because I can never order on Saturday, even online. They don't, they won't allow me to process my order from uh, sundown on Friday night to about, I think it's 1045 on Saturday night because that's, uh, you know, that's keeping in line with their beliefs. But a major part of Silver Linings Playbook is football and football is played on Sundays. So they are not adhering to not working on the Sabbath like is prescribed in the Bible to do. So very not Christian there. And then also the big playoff game that is part of this uh, supposed Christian gambling uh, Pascal's Wager Guys and Dolls parlay bet. Uh, that's, a, that's a Saturday game. All right, that happens on Saturday. So he's they're, they're breaking two religious traditions at the same time. So you want to tell me that the flaw of this is it's it's religious ties? I'm going to say the strongest parts of it are. I really don't. I think he's just reading way too much into it. 
or I could be reading way too much into his thing. Okay, we're almost done. Two more paragraphs. What's more, the very fact of the mental institution embodied by the doctor's decisions shown as misguided, even cruel, about patients' release is presented as an unwarranted collective authority. It's the second anti-institution movie of the season, the other being Cloud Atlas, with its sadistic old-age home. Silver Linings Playbook presents a personal, faith and family-centered approach to holding mental illness in abeyance. Whether the notion is accurate or not, it is very much a consistent and coherent point of view under the guise of free-spirited and generous look at quirky behavior. It embraces and endorses a populist conservative doctrine. Uh, I don't even understand what he's saying, but I don't agree. Also, never seen Cloud Atlas. Uh, sadistic old age home. That sounds mean. Uh, it shows a misguided, even cruel about the patient's releases from... Let's see, the, the mental institution embodied by the doctor's decision shown as misguided, even cruel about patients. They're, they barely show the institution at all in this movie. And it is in no way, I think, trying to show that the, the doctors are misguided or mean. Uh, if anything, they're like, I, I don't even know where he's going to get that. In all fairness, I will rewatch the film to rewatch those parts. It barely takes place in there is he referencing the book in the book you get a lot more of an idea about what pat's experience was there because apparently he spends five years in the institution in the book but in the movie he spends like two minutes there and story-wise he only spends about eight months in there and and the story none of the the plot really revolves around uh his treatment in there it's just using it as a, as a device to give his character a background of what happened before you meet Pat in the story. So all of that, he's just reading into that. Okay, last paragraph of the review. On the other hand, viewers who find themselves sympathetic to its doctrine are unlikely to be any more put off by the story's artifice than they are by that of any CGI tentpole. The Hemingway notion may be out of fashion but it was responsible for the great artistic success of Russell's 2010 movie, The Fighter, which anchored its most antic moments in the loam of life with inner depths, wider connections, and far-reaching consequences. In Silver Linings Playbook, Russell makes a movie of overt symbolism, such as should be no problem for audiences accustomed, as we are, to cinematic artifice. His bold inside-out unfolding of a framework instead of a story would have been even more audacious if it hadn't sought to camouflage it under the sentimental performances. They're loud, but still conventional. So, wrong, 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 wrong. That is just, uh, the saying put off by the story's artifice than they are by that of any CGI tentpole. One, I'm not a big fan of CGI movies. I, big Star Wars fan, right here but i also haven't even seen all of the star wars movies why i like the original ones i like the the first three i talk about those all the time i didn't talk about them for 20 years because i i uh wanted to be popular i wanted women to like me and then i just gave up on that after a while and decided to be the nerd that i am so i do i do like star wars but um not a big fan of of hugely cgi movies i prefer just an animated film overall because i i always get drawn 
drawn out of a movie when I find CGI to be less than perfect. And I think sometimes it's uh, CGI films are more sort. I mean, I realize that's what he's sort of saying that that CGI uh, covers up a lot of. Mis- okay, so I'm, there's there's a couple of things. He's because. I'm having a problem because I both don't like his analogy, but part of his analogy I do think is correct. So he's saying CGI tent poles. Uh, people that like that will also like all the artifice from this story, Silver Linings Playbook. I, that's just really not a fair comparison to say, oh, that you have characters and moments and these sort of cliches in this film that I'm going to relate to uh, computer-generated special effects in other movies that are sort of like spectacle. So you're saying like these characters' performance are like the emotional equivalent of special effects, visual effects. And that is, I mean, I, I don't even know how to address that because it is. I feel like anybody that listens to that statement can understand it's not a really fair comparison. I've said before, the Lord of the Rings movies were really long and they came out in theaters the lord of the rings pancakes at denny's when the the film promotion came out tasted way better than i'm sure any dvd ever tasted so it's not a fair comparison anyway i'm pro that that was his review that was his review i spent two hours breaking down his review now between this and the last episode i spent as long as the movie silver linings playbook is Talking about this wrong review of Silver Linings Playbook. That's, uh, if anybody has any thoughts on it, feel free to reach out. I'm on all the social media. Uh, I would love to hear what you think about Richard Brody's um, review of Silver Linings Playbook. Now, I realize I'm, I'm sort of biased, but I think, I think we've done a pretty decent breakdown where even if you don't agree with me personally or you side more with his review, I think... While not all of my points are are probably reasons to to not like his review, this definitely is a little bit of filler. I, I probably didn't need to spend two hours on this review review, but I do think there are a lot of good points raised that he was just wrong and didn't understand the movie and didn't didn't uh, is not qualified to do a review on this film. So I'd love to read a review of his, um, you know. Band of Outsiders or Jules and Jim or something like that, but uh, maybe he should stay away from the Silver Linings playbook. All right. Well, that's all the time we have for this week. Thank you guys so much for listening. Continue to support. Uh, Make sure to hit that like and subscribe button. I don't even know if that applies to podcasts. That's just what they say on the YouTube videos that I watch. Hi, this is Jamie. Welcome to my channel. I'm cutting your hair. Okay. Anyway, I've got I have got to go to sleep. I've got a long day tomorrow. So, uh, guys, thank you so much for listening. We are going to uh, I have had a couple other topics too, but I think we're actually going to look into uh, doing a dissection of Roger Ebert's review, which was much more positive and I think more accurately depicting how this movie should have been portrayed in 2012. He gives the film three and a half stars out of a uh, total possible three and a half stars, which is a perfect score for Roger. Anyway, 
Guys, thank you so much for listening. This has been Jamie Ward. I'm your host on the Silver Linings Playcast. We will see you down the road and Excelsior. He's kind of crazy. She's a little insane. Keeping energy really messes with his brain. One is divorced. The other's husband is dead. That's why it's so messed up in the head. It's a Silver Linings Playcast. Oh yeah.